Chapter Twelve of the Titan by Theodore Dreiser. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A new retainer. Cowperwood, who had rebuffed Fryhart so courteously but firmly, was to learn that he who takes the sword may well perish by the sword. His own watchful attorney, on guard at the state capitol, where certificates of incorporation were issued in the city and village councils in the courts and so forth, was not long in learning that a counter-movement of significance was under way. Old General Van Sickle was the first to report that something was in the wind in connection with the North Side Company. He came in late one afternoon, his dusty greatcoat thrown loosely about his shoulders, his small soft hat low over his shaggy eyes, and in response to Cowperwood's, Evening, General, what can I do for you? seated himself portentously. "'I think you'll have to prepare for real rough weather in the future, Captain,' he remarked, addressing the financier with a courtesy title that he had fallen in the habit of using. "'What's the trouble now?' asked Cowperwood. "'No real trouble as yet, but there may be. Someone, I don't know who, is getting these three old companies together in one. There's a certificate of incorporation,' been applied for at Springfield, for the United Gas and Fuel Company of Chicago, and there are some directors' meetings now going on at the Douglas Trust Company. I got this from Dunaway, who seems to have friends somewhere that know. Cowperwood put the ends of his fingers together in his customary way and began to tap them lightly and rhythmically. Let me see, the Douglas Trust Company... Mr. Sims is president of that. He isn't shrewd enough to organize a thing of that kind. Who are the incorporators? The general produced a list of four names, none of them officers or directors of the old companies. Dummies, everyone, said Cowperwood succinctly. I think I know, he said after a few moments' reflection, who is behind it, general, but don't let that worry you. They can't harm us if they do unite. They're bound to sell out to us, or buy us out eventually. Still it irritated him to think that Schiehart had succeeded in persuading the old companies to combine on any basis. He had meant to have Addison go shortly, posing as an outside party, and proposed this very thing. Schiehart, he was sure, had acted swiftly following their interview. He hurried to Addison's office in the Lake National, "'Have you heard the news?' exclaimed that individual the moment Cowperwood appeared. "'They're planning to combine. It's Shyheart. I was afraid of that. Sims of the Douglas Trust is going to act as the fiscal agent. I had the information not ten minutes ago.' "'So did I,' replied Cowperwood calmly. "'We should have acted a little sooner. Still, it isn't our fault exactly. Do you know the terms of agreement?' "'They're going to pool their stock on a basis of three to one with about thirty percent of the holding company left for Schiehart to sell or keep as he wants to. He guarantees the interest. We did that for him, drove the game right into his bag. Nevertheless, replied Cowperwood, he still has to deal with us. I propose now that we go into the city council and ask for a blanket franchise. It can be had. If we should get it, it would bring them to their knees." We will really be in a better position than they are with these smaller companies as feeders. We can unite with ourselves. 
That will take considerable money, won't it? Not so much. We may never need to lay a pipe or build a plant. They will offer to sell out, buy, or combine before that. We can fix the terms. Leave it to me. You don't happen to know by any chance this Mr. McKenty, who has so much to say in local affairs here, John J. McKenty. Cowperwood was referring to a man who was at once gambler, rumored owner or controller of a series of houses of prostitution, rumored maker of mayors and aldermen, rumored financial backer of many saloons and contracting companies, in short, the patron saint of the political and social underworld of Chicago, and who was naturally to be reckoned with in matters which related to the city and state legislative program. "'I don't,' said Addison. "'But I can get you a letter. Why?' "'Don't trouble to ask me that now. Get me as strong an introduction as you can.' "'I'll have one for you today sometime,' replied Addison efficiently. "'I'll send it over to you.' Cowperwood went out while Addison speculated as to this newest move. Trust Cowperwood to dig a pit into which the enemy might fall. He marveled sometimes at the man's resourcefulness. He never quarreled with the directness and incisiveness of Cowperwood's action. The man, McKenty, whom Cowperwood had in mind in this rather disturbing hour, was as interesting and forceful an individual as one would care to meet anywhere. A typical figure of Chicago and the West at the time. He was a pleasant, smiling, bland, affable person, not unlike Cowperwood in magnetism and subtlety, but different by degree of animal coarseness, not visible on the surface, which Cowperwood would scarcely have understood, and in a kind of temperamental pull, drawing to him that vast pathetic life of the underworld in which his soul found its solution. There is a kind of nature, not artistic, not spiritual, in no way emotional, nor yet unduly philosophical, that is nevertheless a sphered content of life, not crystalline, perhaps, and yet not utterly dark. An agate temperament, cloudy and strange. As a three-year-old child, McKenty had been brought from Ireland by his immigrant parents during a period of famine. He had been raised on the far south side in a shanty, which stood near a maze of railroad tracks, and as a naked baby he had crawled on its earthen floor. His father had been promoted to a section boss after working for years as a day laborer on the adjoining railroad, and John, Jr., as one of eight other children, had been sent out early to do many things, to be an errand boy in a store, a messenger boy for a telegraph company, an emergency sweep about a saloon, and finally a bartender. This last was his true beginning, for he was discovered by a keen-minded politician and encouraged to run for the state legislature and to study law. Even as a stripling, what things had he not learned? Robbery, ballot-box stuffing, the sale of votes, the appointive power of leaders, graft nepotism, vice-exploitations, all the things that go to make up or did, the American world of politics and financial and social strife. There is a strong assumption in the upper walks of life that there is nothing to be learned at the bottom. If you could have looked into the capacious but balanced temperament of John J. McKenty, you would have seen a strange wisdom there, 
and stranger memories. Whole worlds of brutalities, tendernesses, errors, immoralities suffered, endured, even rejoiced in. The hardy, eager life of the animal that has nothing but its perceptions, instincts, appetites to guide it. Yet the man had the air and the poise of a gentleman. Today at 48, McKenty was an exceedingly important personage. His roomy house on the west side, at Harrison Street and Ashland Avenue, was visited at sundry times by financiers, businessmen, office-holders, priests, saloon-keepers, in short, the whole range and gamut of active, subtle political life. From McKenty they could obtain that counsel, wisdom, surety, solution, which all of them on occasion were anxious to have, and which in one deft way and another, often, by no more than gratitude and an acknowledgment of his leadership, they were willing to pay for. To police captains and officers whose places he occasionally saved, when they should justly have been discharged. To mothers whose erring boys or girls he took out of prison and sent home again. To keepers of bawdy houses who he protected from a too harsh invasion of the grafting propensities of the local police, to politicians and saloon-keepers, who were in danger of being destroyed by public upheavals of one kind and another. He seemed, in hours of stress, when his smooth, genial, almost artistic face beamed on them, like a heaven-sent sun of light, a kind of western god, all-powerful, all-merciful, perfect. On the other hand, there were ingrates, uncompromising, or pharisaical religionists and reformers, plotting, scheming rivals, who found him deadly to contend with. There were many henchmen, runners from an almost imperial throne, to do his bidding. He was simple in dress and taste, married, and, apparently, very happy, a professing, though virtually non-practicing Catholic, a suave, genial, Buddha-like man, powerful and enigmatic. When Cowperwood and McKenty first met, it was on a spring evening at the latter's home. The windows of the large house were pleasantly open, though screened, and the curtains were blowing faintly in a light air. Along with a sense of the new green life everywhere came a breath of stockyards. On the presentation of Addison's letter, and of another secured through Van Sickle, from a well-known political judge, Cowperwood had been invited to call. On his arrival he was offered a drink, a cigar, introduced to Mrs. McKenty, who, lacking an organized social life of any kind, was always pleased to meet these celebrities of the upper world, if only for a moment, and shown eventually into the library. Mrs. McKenty, as he might have observed if he had had the eye for it, was plump and fifty, a sort of superannuated Eileen but still showing traces of a former hardy beauty, and concealing pretty well the evidences that she had once been a prostitute. It so happened that on this particular evening McKenty was in a most genial frame of mind. There were no immediate political troubles bothering him just now. It was early in May. Outside, the trees were budding, the sparrows and robins were voicing their several moods. A delicious haze was in the air, and some early mosquitoes were reconnoitering the screens which protected the windows and doors. Cowperwood, in spite of his various troubles, was in a complacent state of mind himself. 
He liked life, even its very difficult complications, perhaps its complications best of all. Nature was beautiful, tender at times, but difficulties, plans, plots, schemes to unravel and make smooth, these things were what made existence worthwhile. "'Well now, Mr. Cowperwood,' McKenty began, when they finally entered the cool, pleasant library, "'what can I do for you?' "'Well, Mr. McKenty,' said Cowperwood, choosing his words and bringing the finest resources of his temperament into play, "'it isn't so much, and yet it is. I want a franchise from the Chicago City Council, and I want you to help me get it, if you will. I know you may say to me, "'Why not go to the councilman direct?' I would do that, except that there are certain other elements, individuals, who might come to you. It wouldn't offend you, I know, when I say that I have always understood that you are a sort of clearinghouse for political troubles in Chicago. Mr. McKenty smiled. That's flattering, he replied dryly. Now, I am rather new myself to Chicago, went on Cowperwood softly. I have been here only a year or two. I come from Philadelphia. I have been interested as a fiscal agent and an investor in several gas companies that have been organized in Lakeview, Hyde Park, and elsewhere outside the city limits, as you may possibly have seen by the papers lately. I am not their owner in the sense that I have provided all or even a good part of the money invested in them. I am not even their manager, except in a very general way. I might better be called their promoter and guardian but I am that for other people and myself." Mr. McKenty nodded. Now, Mr. McKenty, it was not very long after I started out to get franchises to do business in Lakeview and Hyde Park before I found myself confronted by the interests which control the three old city gas companies. They were very much opposed to our entering the field in Cook County anywhere, as you may imagine, although we were not really crowding in on their field. Since then, they have fought me with lawsuits, injunctions, and charges of bribery and conspiracy. I know, put in Mr. McKenty. I have heard something of it. Quite so, replied Cowperwood. Because of their opposition, I made them an offer to combine these three companies, and the three new ones, into one. Take out a new charter and give the city a uniform gas service. They would not do that largely because I was an outsider, I think. Since then, another person, Mr. Shyhart, McKinney nodded, who has never had anything to do with the gas business here, has stepped in and offered to combine them. His plan is to do exactly what I wanted to do. Only his further proposition is, once he has the three old companies united, to invade this new gas field of ours and hold us up, or force us to sell by obtaining rival franchises in these outlying places. There is talk of combining these suburbs with Chicago, as you know, which would allow these three downtown franchises to become mutually operative with our own. This makes it essential for us to do one of several things, as you may see, either to sell out on the best terms we can now, or to continue to fight at a rather heavy expense without making any attempt to strike back or to get into the city council and ask for a franchise to do business in the downtown section, a general blanket franchise to sell gas in Chicago alongside of the old companies, with the sole intention of protecting ourselves, 
as one of my officers is fond of saying, added Calverwood humorously. McKenty smiled again. I see, he said. Isn't that a rather large order, though, Mr. Calverwood, seeking a new franchise? Do you suppose the general public would agree that the city needs an extra gas company? It's true the old companies haven't been any too generous. My own gas isn't of the best. He smiled vaguely, prepared to listen further. Now, Mr. McKenty, I know that you are a practical man, went on Cowperwood, ignoring this interruption, and so am I. I am not coming to you with any vague story concerning my troubles and expecting you to be interested as a matter of sympathy. I realize that to go into the City Council of Chicago with a legitimate proposition is one thing. To get it passed and approved by the city authorities is another. I need advice and assistance, and I am not begging it. If I could get a general franchise such as I have described, it would be worth a great deal of money to me. It would help me to close up and realize on these new companies which are entirely sound and needed. It would help me to prevent the old companies from eating me up. As a matter of fact, I must have such a franchise to protect my interests and give me a running, fighting chance. Now I know that none of us are in politics or finance for our health. If I could get such a franchise, it would be worth from one-fourth to one-half of all I personally would make out of it, providing my plan of combining these new companies with the old ones should go through, say from three to four hundred thousand dollars. Here again Cowperwood was not quite frank, but safe. It is needless to say to you that I can command ample capital. This franchise would do that. Briefly, I want to know if you won't give me your political support in this matter and join in with me on the basis that I propose. I will make it perfectly clear to you beforehand who my associates are. I will put all the data and details on the table before you, so that you can see for yourself how things are. If you should find at any time that I have misrepresented anything, you are at full liberty, of course, to withdraw. As I said before, he concluded, I am not a beggar. I am not coming here to conceal any facts or to hide anything which might deceive you as to the worth of all of this to us. I want you to know the facts. I want you to give me your aid on such terms as you think are fair and equitable. Really, the only trouble with me in this situation is that I am not a silk stocking. If I were, this gas war would have been adjusted long ago. These gentlemen, who are so willing to reorganize through Mr. Shyheart, are largely opposed to me because I am, comparatively, a stranger in Chicago, and not in their set. If I were, he moved his hand slightly, I don't suppose I would be here this evening asking for your favor, although that does not say that I am not glad to be here, or that I would not be glad to work with you in any way that I might. Circumstances simply have not thrown me across your path before." As he talked, his eyes fixed McKenty steadily, almost innocently, and the latter, following him clearly, felt all the while that he was listening to a strange, able, dark, and very forceful man. There was no beating about the bush here, no squeamishness of spirit, and yet there was subtlety, the kind McKenty liked. While he was amused by Cowperwood's casual reference to the silk stockings who were keeping him out, it appealed to him. 
he caught the point of view as well as the intention of it. Cowperwood represented a new and rather pleasing type of financier to him. Evidently, he was traveling in able company, if one could believe the men who had introduced him so warmly. McKinty, as Cowperwood was well aware, had personally no interest in the old companies, and also, though this he did not say, no particular sympathy with them. They were just remote financial corporations to him, paying political tribute on demand, expecting political favors in return. Every few weeks now they were in council, asking for one gas main franchise after another, special privileges in certain streets, asking for better, more profitable, light contracts, asking for dock privileges in the river, a lower tax rate, and so forth and so on. McKinty did not pay much attention to these things personally. He had a subordinate in council, a very powerful henchman by the name of Patrick Dowling, a meaty, vigorous Irishman and a true watchdog of graft for the machine, who worked with the mayor, the city treasurer, the city tax receiver, in fact, all the officers of the current administration, and saw that such minor matters were properly equalized. Mr. McKenty had only met two or three of the officers of the Southside Gas Company, and that quite casually. He did not like them very well. The truth was that the old companies were officered by men who considered politicians of the McKenty and Dowling stripe as very evil men. If they paid them and did other such wicked things, it was because they were forced to do so. Well, McKenty replied, lingering his thin gold watch-chain in a thoughtful manner, that's an interesting scheme you have. Of course, the old companies wouldn't like your asking for a rival franchise. But once you had it, they couldn't object very well, could they? He smiled. Mr. McKinty spoke with no suggestion of a brogue. From one point of view, it might be looked upon as bad business, but not entirely. They would be sure to make a great cry, though they haven't been any too kind to the public themselves. But if you offered to combine with them, I see no objection. It's certain to be as good for them in the long run as it is for you. This merely permits you to make a better bargain. Exactly, said Cowperwood. And you have the means, you tell me, to lay mains in every part of the city and fight with them for business if they won't give in? I have the means, said Cowperwood, or if I haven't, I can get them. Mr. McKinty looked at Mr. Cowperwood very solemnly. There was a kind of mutual sympathy, understanding, and admiration between the two men, but it was still heavily veiled by self-interest. To Mr. McKenty, Cowperwood was interesting because he was one of the very few businessmen he had met who were not ponderous, pharisaical, even hypocritical when they were dealing with him. "'Well, I'll tell you what I'll do, Mr. Cowperwood,' he said finally. "'I'll take it under consideration.' Let me think it over until Monday, anyhow. There is more of an excuse now for the introduction of a general gas ordinance than there would be a little later. I can see that. Why don't you draw up your proposed franchise and let me see it? Then we might find out what some of the other gentlemen of the city council think. Cowperwood almost smiled at the word gentlemen. I've already done that, he said. Here it is. McKenty took it, surprised and yet pleased at this evidence of business proficiency. He liked a strong manipulator of this kind. 
the more since he was not one himself, and most of those that he did know were thin-blooded and squeamish. "'Let me take this,' he said. "'I'll see you next Monday again, if you wish.' "'Come Monday.' Cowperwood got up. "'I thought I'd come and talk to you direct, Mr. McKenty,' he said, "'and now I'm glad that I did. You will find, if you will take the trouble to look into this matter, that it is just as I represent it. There's a very great deal of money here, in one way and another, though it will take some little time to work it out. Mr. McKinty saw the point. Yes, he said sweetly, to be sure. They looked into each other's eyes as they shook hands. I'm not sure, but you haven't hit upon a very good idea here, concluded McKinty sympathetically. A very good idea indeed. Come and see me again next Monday, or about that time, and I'll let you know what I think. Come any time you have anything else you want of me. I'll always be glad to see you. It's a fine night, isn't it? he added, looking out as they neared the door. A nice moon, that, he added. A sickle moon was in the sky. Good night. End of chapter 12